We went to a pastor's conference this week, and I learned a, variable val- a very valuable lesson for pastoral ministry, very spiritual lesson. It is that you should not ever travel from the Pacific time zone to Orlando, 1 a.m., on Daylight Saving Time's weekend. That's what I learned. It was a good time, though. We are starting a study on Philippians tonight. Um, it's one of my favorite books of the New Testament. One of my favorite books in the New Testament. I would think that you would share the same opinion. Very uh, popular book, for lack of a better word. I can't probably think of any preachers who haven't preached through the book of Philippians. I probably can't think of any believers who haven't heard a sermon series on Philippians. Can we all agree with that? But I believe Philippians is a book that our church needs. And I'll tell you why as we study. It's a book that's going to help us tremendously. We're going to go through it somewhat quickly so we can see the whole context. It's only going to take maybe 12, 13 weeks to get through the whole epistle, but I believe you'll benefit from that so you can see how it fits in the New Testament and how it fits here in our church. There are two views on the Apostle Paul. Okay, number one, you have the exalted Paul. The exalted Paul. That's how we think of him. That's how we think of him. Number two, you have the humble Paul. The humble Paul is how he would want us to think of him. So we have to ask the question, could Paul have done it alone? Could Paul have done what he, have, could Paul have done what he did all by himself? Easy answer to that is no, no way. It took a lot of partners, partners in the gospel to help carry out his work. The next question for us is, can we do it alone? Can one pastor do it alone? Can one church member do this alone? Can one deacon do it alone? The answer to that is still no. So a church that carries out Christ's mission is a church that is started and sustained by gospel partnership. A church that really carries out Christ's mission is a church that's going to be started, founded on the gospel, and it's going to be sustained by gospel partnership. People partnering together for the work of the gospel. So as we introduce this letter, we're going to talk about a similar concept to what Daniel just read for us about everyone in the body ministering. It's a biblical concept, but I do believe we ignore it often, way too often. Often, what do we, who do we expect to do the ministry in the church? We expect to. The pastor to do it. And that's the mindset of many churches. We pay him. He's the only guy who gets paid. Therefore, he's the only guy who should do the work. And we, therefore, since we pay him, to tell him what to do. That's how it is in most churches. And who's seen that before? I've seen it many times. But that is not a biblical concept. The biblical concept is for the whole church to partner together to do the work of the gospel. So I want us to think, as we study Philippians, to think of the church, think of our church, more in terms of being a gospel outpost and less in terms of being a social club. I want us to think less in terms of self-service and more in terms of self-sacrifice. If we have that mindset, I believe we're going to be a biblical church that's carrying out the gospel and we'll be able to work together. I'll also say this, that the letter to Philippians, it's not a letter of rebuke. Can you think of any other letters in the New Testament that are letters of rebuke? Galatians. That's, uh, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? If that's not a rebuke, I don't know what it is. He does have admonishments, but it's primarily a letter of encouragement. 
It's an encouraging letter, Philippians is. And I believe we can have the same encouragement. When you study it, it even looks like Philippi, this church of Philippi, is one of Paul's favorite churches. He loves them. He cares for them, and he's writing them out of concern and wants to see that church sustained. And he's there to encourage them, not to slap them upside the head. Sometimes Paul does do that, but not in this case. So I am absolutely confident that the Holy Spirit is going to convict us where needed and encourage us where needed as we study Philippians. I'm absolutely confident that he'll do that. So my goal tonight is just to introduce the letter to you, go cover basically the first two verses, plus the whole book put together. That's what we want to do. And I want us to, tonight, as we start this study, I want us all to be renewed in our desire to participate in the work of the gospel in the way that the Holy Spirit has gifted you uniquely. I want us to be renewed in that desire. There's one preacher that talks about the job of preaching as a person standing between two worlds. You have the biblical world on this side, and you have today's world on this side. And there's a big gap between the two. So it's the preacher's job to bring the people back into the first century, or whatever the biblical time period was, let them see the truth there, and bring it back to here to the 21st century. So that's what we're going to try to do um, in this study tonight. Bridge that gap. So let's read our verses. Uh, if you turn to Philippians, we'll read the first two verses. Paul and Timothy, bond servants or slaves of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So he has the usual beginning to his epistle here. He has the senders, those are who? Paul and Timothy. He has the saints, those are the people in Philippi, all the believers there, including the leadership which gives you a little glimpse into how the leadership structure was in the first century. You have at one local church, overseers or pastors, elders, all the same uh, meaning there, guiding the church, leading the church, and you have the deacons to help with the service. So you have that structure seen here all the way back in the church at Philippi. And it wasn't until later on in, in history of the church that that got it distorted and people started changing. But this is how it was there. So you have the saints, and you have the salutation where he, Paul wants grace and peace from God to be delivered to these saints and to be encouraged by the grace and peace that God and Christ offer. But before I move any further, before we dive into some information here, let's have a word of prayer. Let's pray once more. Father, we love you. We don't deserve your word. We don't deserve to be here together right now. We don't deserve to be encouraged. We don't deserve the cross. We don't deserve letters like this. I pray, Lord, that we would be humbled. pray that you would expose our sin. And I pray that we would be encouraged, Lord, where we are being faithful to you. I pray that we'd be renewed tonight. I pray that we would love the gospel. And I pray that we would not leave its work to the next person, but that we would take it as our own responsibility and encourage others to do the same. We beg you to help us with this. Praise in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we're going to answer three questions tonight. Three questions tonight. I'm going to tell you up front, I heard this recently. Someone said, I'm not sure if what I'm about to do is a lesson or a sermon, so he called it a, a lerman. That's what tonight's going to be, so... 
we're going to go back and forth. Put on the student's hat for a minute, then go put on the church member hat. All right, we're going to go back and forth. Because we have to get into the first century, see some of the historical information. If we don't understand those things, then we're not going to understand how Paul admonishes or encourages the Philippians. We have to see what's going on in the background here. But we'll go back and forth, bridging that gap between the biblical world and our world today. First question is, where does Philippians fit in the history of the New Testament? We'll answer that first. And second, we'll answer, where does Philippians fit in the message of the New Testament? And then third, we're going to answer, where does Philippians fit in the life of Grace Bible Church of Tampa? And we'll try to apply, even tonight as we begin the study, lessons from Philippians. So those are the three questions we'll try to answer tonight. So first, where does it fit in the history of the New Testament? Trying to find where Philippians fit in all these categories. Where does it fit in the history? And as we look at how Philippians fits in the history of the New Testament, we're going to discover that it was a church that started, founded by gospel partnership. If you don't know what gospel partnership is yet, we're going to be defining it as we move. But it's a church that started by gospel partnership. See first that Paul and his ministry team, they were slaves to Christ and his mission. Paul and his ministry team, here he mentions Timothy along with them. And as we go into the book of Acts, we'll see that other people with them were with them. But they were slaves to Christ and his mission. They were there to do whatever Christ wanted them to do. Notice, what does he not call himself here? What term does Paul not refer to himself here? Apostle. Isn't that interesting? What is the... What is the title he gives himself here? What, what does he call himself? What else? That's it. Slaves. Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. And that's going to be important as he encourages the Philippians later on to be humble. They were slaves to his mission. Timothy, he's not the one who actually was the author of this letter, but I do believe he was helping pen the letter. And I also do believe that Paul includes him here because he was influential in the start of the church of Philippi. And they would have known him very well. So he mentions Paul and Timothy. What does it look like to be a slave of Christ? We're referring to Acts a lot tonight. But Acts 20, 24, you don't have to turn there right now. But Paul says this. This is what it looks like to be committed to Christ and his mission. He says, but I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself. He said, I don't consider my life of any account as dear to myself. Why? So that I may finish my course in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus. To do what? To solemnly testify of the gospel of the grace of God. That's the mindset of a slave. I don't care anything about my life. I don't count any of it as dear to myself, but I'm going to do what Christ has me to do. That's the mindset of a slave. And this is what carries him through. How did Paul and his team meet the Philippians? That's the question we have now. Turn to the book of Acts. Turn to the book of Acts. What chapter are we going to to see the beginning of Philippi, the church of Philippi? What chapter are we looking at? I'm hearing some whispers. 16, chapter 16. And we'll just review that briefly here. This is where he met them. It's not when he wrote the letter, but this is where he met them. So this is during the second missionary journey. And there you have the map there. Lots of lines and mileage associated with Apostle Paul, isn't there? His odometer on his sandals is really high. But this is his second missionary journey, and he's heading to Philippi, but he doesn't know it yet. 
He doesn't know it yet. How did he get there and what happened when he got there? That's the question we're asking. So look uh, briefly at Acts 16. This, this is after Paul and Barnabas. They separated over who? Mark. They had a disagreement about Mark because Mark didn't stick with them for a little bit. Barnabas said, hey, you know, he's all right. We can take him with him. And Paul said, nope, we're moving on. God had a plan, though. As Mike has already mentioned, God had a plan to develop a new missionary team. And there would be reconciliation eventually. So they, they, they split over Mark. And who did they meet? Who did Paul meet? He meets Timothy. He does nice things to him, right? Circumcises him. And he includes him and his missionary team. And then they start. They want to preach the gospel in Asia. But there you have roadblock number one, verse six. They pass through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Roadblock number one. Roadblock number two. After they came to Mysia, they were trying to get into Bithynia. But the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. So they have another roadblock. And now they're redirected to Macedonia. Redirected to Macedonia. And passing by, verse 8, and passing by Mysia, they came to Troas. And what happened? They have a, Paul has a vision. Paul has a vision of a man from Macedonia. He's standing and appealing to say, come, please come over to Macedonia. Please help us. We need your help. And what do they conclude? Let's go to Macedonia. This is the opportunity we've been looking for, even though we didn't know it was going to be Macedonia. Trying to get these other places, but God sovereignly directs them to a place called Macedonia, to the city of Philippi. It says, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, verse 12, a Roman colony. And they were staring there for some days in that city. A Roman colony would have been like a miniature Rome. You would have had, in lots of those kind of colonies, uh, veteran soldiers from the Roman army, sometimes 300 at a time there with their wife and kids, and they would have gone to significant places like this where main roads went through, and they would have planted down their roots there. And what that would have done is spread the Roman Empire quite rapidly and given them strength because they would have been with all those roadways. So here they were. They had the Roman language, Roman dress, and Macedonia, this Roman colony. And you have some surprising works of God when they get to Philippi. Who's the first person that God works in? Lydia, Lydia. And verse 14, this is the gospel reaching Europe. And there's, a, I think Luke drew this picture while he was watching Paul a minister. I'm kidding. Uh, but there's Lydia, a woman from the city of Thyatira, seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God. She was listening to Paul. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. So she was likely a proselyte, um, a worshiper of God, probably stuck in Jewish traditions. But here she hears the gospel, the gospel, the good news of what Christ has done for the first time. And the Lord opens her heart, and she's converted. And she says to Paul and his team, If you judge me to be faithful to the Lord, verse 15, come in and stay in my house. And she prevailed upon us. You also have God working in a demon-possessed fortune teller girl. God's working in her heart. Paul and his team were going about trying to preach, and she keeps screaming, hey, these guys are proclaiming to you a way of salvation over and over and over and over again. And Paul gets very annoyed by this, and he eventually says, I command you in the name, verse 18, of Christ Jesus to come out of her. And it came out that very moment, and the demon was gone. So God worked in her. Who else did God work in? The Philippian jailer. 
the Philippian jailer. After God's work and this demon-possessed fortune teller girl, um, whatever you want to call her, her bosses weren't very happy, were they? Not very happy people because cutting off income is, that doesn't make anyone happy. And they start making up claims about Paul and his ministry team, and they get them thrown in jail. And you know the story about when they get in jail. They're singing hymns of praise to God, considering it worthy to suffer for Christ. And what happens? You have an earthquake. Oh, which, by the way, of course, Roman Catholics took over the Lydia Baptistry area, and they planted a church there. But, and this was likely the place where Lydia was baptized, somewhere in that area. We're not positive. And here they are in a Philippine jail. Probably not the same jail, but this is still Philippi, and it's a jail. So we put a picture of it here. But there you have an earthquake. Their stocks are loosened. And here is Luke drawing another picture of what happened. And uh, the, the Philippian jailer, in verse 27, he draws out a sword and is about to kill himself, thinking that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, Don't harm yourself, we're all, we're all here. And he called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And that night, the Lord changed that jailer's heart, and he and his household believed, and they were baptized. I bring all that up to say, these were likely the first people to be part of the church at Philippi. God sovereignly redirects Paul over and over and over again to a place he wasn't planning to go. Boom, in Philippi, plants a church. I can't say that these were all the same people who would have been there whenever Paul was writing the letter. But this is how the church was started, with sovereign beginnings, gospel partnership, people banding together to bring the gospel to places. Now we have to ask the question of where he was when he wrote the letter. Where was he when he wrote the letter? We're not going to be looking at it, but the key chapters for that will be Acts 27 through 28. Acts 27 through 28. And Mike is covering what happened before this with all the trials. He's doing this on Sunday mornings right now, but all Paul's trials. He gets in prison in Caesarea. He finally appeals to Caesar, and we saw the promise this morning from Acts 23.11 that you're going to, Paul, you're going to witness in Rome. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. And that promise is carried out because Paul appeals to Caesar to take the sea journey. Who was in Sunday school last Sunday morning? The main adult Sunday school. This is the story we talked about, that sea journey, the dangerous sea journey, finally arriving in Rome. And where was he when he gets to Rome? He's there with a the guard, there in his own rented quarters. And, but he's able to receive people freely, unhindered, and he's preaching the kingdom of God. He's able to receive people. And this is likely around 62 AD, writing from Rome. So this is where it fits in the history of the New Testament. This is where Philippians fits in the history of what's happening in the New Testament world. It's how it started. It started by gospel partnership. People committed, slaves of Christ, committed to preaching the gospel wherever the Holy Spirit wants them to. We have to accept that same kind of commitment, that same kind of intense commitment to preach the gospel, to bring the gospel wherever God would have us. I'd say this community is a good place to start. So number two, number two, we want to answer the question, where does Philippians fit in the message of the New Testament? Where does the Philippians fit in the message of the New Testament? As we look at how Philippians fits in the message of the New Testament documents, we're going to discover that it was a church not only started by the gospel, but also sustained by the gospel, carried on by the gospel, by gospel partnership. 
We're going to see it's, it's, it's not an epistle without aim. It has an aim. We often get to books of the New Testament or books of the Bible and just pick out what we want to pick out, right? But this book has a specific aim, and this is what we want to discover now. I once asked a little boy some time ago, maybe three or four years old, I said, hey, where are you from? He said, North America. I was impressed that a little boy would know that I say that, but it didn't give me much information, did it? Not much information at all. Turned out he was from Lutz area, but. <laughs> Cicero wrote a letter. This is how his letter began. This is, uh, he says, uh, I've begun to write to you something or other without any definite subject so that I may have a sort of talk with you. <laughs> this is how we approach the epistles a lot of times. Well, I guess I'm going to get some information here. He just wants to tell us something. We're not sure what it is yet. But hopefully they'll get something good out of this. No, Paul has a specific purpose in mind. Lots of sub-themes going through, but he wants to tell them something important, okay? He's not just all over the place. I just want to have a little bit of a talk with you. Now he's specific. How does it fit in the big picture of the New Testament sections? This is important. What do the Gospels tell us, the four Gospels? They tell us of Christ's earthly ministry, his person and work, don't they? Tell us what he did, how he healed people, how he trained his disciples. And he gives them the great commission. He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and do what? Make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. What do we call that? The great commission. This is what he gives his disciples. Did they obey or disobey? What book tells us of their obedience? Acts does. That's the second main section of the New Testament. The book of Acts tells us how Jesus' first followers... Carry out the Great Commission. They wanted to know about the kingdom. Hey, is it at this time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? You're going to do it now, right? You're going to establish everything, make it just right politically, uh, sociologically. We're going to be straight, right? Hey, it's not, your, it's not for you to know times and epics, which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But what? You're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You're going to be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, remotest parts of the earth. He gives them that mission, that mission. And do they carry it out? They do. They carry out the Great Commission. And that's what the Acts, book of Acts is telling us. What about the epistles? How do the epistles fit in all that? The epistles address specific needs of those churches that were planted throughout that history of the book of Acts. Certain, certain churches need to be rebuked. Some were just to provide instruction for young pastors. Some wanted to provide encouragement, say, hey, keep doing what you're doing. Some were there to warn against false teachers. Some did all the above. But there, the epistles are to fill in those details and give individual instruction to those churches that were planted throughout the book of Acts. So what about Philippians? What about Philippians? How does Philippians fit in the message of the New Testament? That's our main question we want to get away with tonight, or go away with tonight. What special role does Philippians play? Philippians is the epistle of, yeah, okay, so at this church, you know not to answer things out loud now, don't you? Because <laughs> you get in trouble if you answer things out loud. It's always referred to as the epistle of joy, isn't it? What does that mean? Tim LaHaye, who's heard of the book, or who's heard of Tim LaHaye? You know him from the Left Behind series, right? He also wrote a book, some books on marriage. One book is called How to Be Happy Though Married. Anyone ever heard of that? Yeah, he wrote that book. We often approach the book of Philippians as how to be happy though a Christian. 
I'm a Christian, so I guess I have to be happy now. This is a book that tells me how to be happy. Is Philippians really that superficial? No, it is not. It's not that superficial. It's something much deeper than that. Joy is an irreplaceable part of the letter, an irreplaceable part of the letter. You can't get rid of it, and you need to understand it in its context. But I'm going to submit to you that it's not the main point. It's not going to be the main point of Philippians. And I think if you get this, I know your initial, when you hear something that you've never heard before, you initially want to reject it, right? I want you to hear me out, and I want you to study Philippians on your own and consider this, consider this proposition. And I'm not alone. Many commentators say it. William William Hendrickson said, uh, it's hardly correct to say that joy is the summary or theme of the letter. And many other commentators would say the same thing. But we'll have to put that on the back burner for a moment. But we'll see what role joy does play. And we'll bring it up here in just a little bit. All right, so you have a knock on the door. A knock on the door. Here's Paul. He's chained to Roman guard. He gets a knock on the door. Well, I don't know if it's a door or not, but he gets a visitor. He gets a visitor. Who's the visitor? Who's the visitor from Philippi? Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus. He gets a visitor. How far is Philippi from Rome? I'd look it up. About 800 miles. 800 miles. Could you imagine traveling first century from Florida to Virginia without a car or a plane. I wouldn't like to do it. We don't even like doing it in our van. <laughs> um, but that's about the distance it would have been for Epaphroditus, about 800 miles. The standards, the standards have changed, haven't they? Standards of what we're committed to and what we're not committed to, they've changed. What about William Carey? He's writing this in the 1700s. Listen to this. He says, as to their distance from us. He's talking about who we refer to as the heathen or the unbelieving nations. He says, as to their distance from us, whatever objections might have been made on that account before the invention of the mariner's compass, nothing can be alleged for without any color of plausibility in the present age. So here's William Carey talking about their great technology, the mariner's compass, and that there should be no excuse for you not to reach the unbelieving nations because we have this technology. The standards have changed. What about before? What about Epaphroditus? Think about his journey. Through land and sea, trying to get to Paul to do what? We'll answer that in a second. We see Epaphroditus' commitment. What links are we willing to go for the gospel? What links are we willing to take to partner in the gospel? Epaphroditus went great links, and he almost lost his life for it, you'll see, as we study the Philippians, the Philippian letter. But here, Paul sends him back. Paul sends him back. He brings him a gift from the Philippians, and now he says, I'm going to send you back, Epaphroditus, to the church, and I'm going to send a letter with you. 2.25 says, uh, But I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my fellow brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and your minister to my need. I'm sending it back to you, most likely with the letter. It says, Therefore I have sent him all the more eagerly, so that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less concerned about you. So he's his correspondent there to minister, there to partner in the gospel, there to bring a gift to Paul, because Paul is in great need, and he brings a gift from the Philippians. So you see Epaphroditus partnering in the gospel and sending a letter back to the Philippians. Now, 
what does he want to tell them? He wants to tell them that he's going to express gratitude for the gift that he sent or that they sent. He wants to tell the Philippians that Epaphroditus is okay. He almost died for the cause of the gospel, but now he's okay. So you don't have to be as concerned about him. Paul wanted to reassure the Philippians that he was joyful. They had heard what Paul's circumstances. Paul wanted to reassure them, say, hey, I'm joyful. I know why God's caused my imprisonment. I know why this has happened, verse 12, chapter 1. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Paul says, hey, I got the right mindset. I'm joyful. I really appreciate you guys' concern. And I want to write this letter to you to say I'm okay and tell you thank you. So you have all these things going on, but the main thing he's driving at is trying to get them to understand this biblical concept of gospel partnership. Gospel partnership. And if you had to pick a summary for the letter, if you had to pick a summary passage for the letter, it would be chapter 1, verses 27 through 30, if you look at that. And in a, probably a matter of three or four weeks, we're going to cover this passage by itself. But I want to read it to you because I do believe it gives you the summary of the letter. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you. That you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you. And that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. So this is Paul's concern for the Philippians. Philippi, the church of Philippi was a church that was started by the gospel partnership and it's sustained by gospel partnership. And now Paul's writing to say, you have to remain committed to this gospel partnership or it's not going to work. You have to be unified. You have to stand firm together for the faith of the gospel and the gospel alone and not your pet peeves. You have to be unified, partnering in the gospel. And this is what's going to lead us to where Philippians fits in the life of our church. Where does Philippians fit in the life of Grace Bible Church of Tampa? As we look at how Philippians fits in the life of our church, Tonight, and as we study the letter, we're going to discover that it's a message that calls us to partner together in the gospel in all kinds of different ways, all kinds of unique ways, depending on how the Holy Spirit has gifted you. But it's going to call us to partner together in the gospel, to renew that commitment, and to encourage us for what we're already doing. That's how it's going to function here in our church. So whenever you're studying this, don't take the usual sentimental approach where, okay, here you're reading... The newspaper, you're in your bowl of cereal in the morning, you got Philippians right there, the usual. Oh, yeah, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Yeah, I need to do that today. Let's see what's the headline here. Uh, okay. Yes, uh, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Oh, yeah, to live as Christ to die again. That's great. I'm going to remember that today. Get back to the newspaper. That's, don't take the usual approach, okay? Study it in its context. There's going to be things in our church, and there are things in our church that hinder our unity. Things that are hindering our unity. Things that and a small scale right now, on a small scale, are, and I think you have seen it on Facebook, <laughs> there are things in our church that are starting to hinder our unity. I do believe that as a whole, our church is doing amazing things together. We love each other. We're sacrificing for each other. And this is why I believe Philippians is going to fit perfectly in our church in this time, because as a whole, 
We need encouragement to keep doing what we're doing. We don't need to slap around. But if we don't have the things that are going, that are going to hinder our unity, if those things are not on our radar, then we're going to fall into disunity and we're going to lose our mission. We're going to lose the purpose for which Christ has put us here in this place. So what are some things that, are, that could hinder our unity? One preacher put it this way. He refers to front door churches. Anyone know what a front door church is? It's the usual church where you have the big events, the appeal to uh, you know, middle, upper class communities. Everyone's pretty much the same. The cookie cutter houses, everyone's doing the exact same things. Everyone has the same exact lawnmower. Everyone has the same exact grill. Everyone has the same exact car. These cookie cutter communities. And the churches get in there and appeal to just those communities. And who do they attract? Just those people. Am I faulting a church if it's homogeneous demographically? No, I'm not. I'm not, I'm not rebuking that. But I will say that when you have a homogeneous church like that, it's going to be a lot easier to get along. It will be. And it's, the gospel even there will take, a back, take the back burner. Because what are you talking about? You're talking about your hobbies because you all do the same things. Talking about the grill, you just buy, oh, yeah, I bought the same grill. Yeah. And you're all getting along just great. Those churches, it's easy to experience unity, even though it's superficial. But if you have a church that's full of diverse backgrounds, people from South America, people from North America, people from all over the world, people from the East and the West, and all kinds of subcultures in between, you're going to have issues that come up, and you're going to have to deal with them in a way that's honoring to the gospel, and you're going to have to remember the purpose of the church. And you're going to have to strive for unity. If you don't work on it, you will be disunified. You will not have unity. So the question is, are we a front door church or a side door church? I think we could see where we're going there. So this is, that's something that can hinder our unity. Next thing that can hinder our unity would be pride or unwillingness to see the other side of the story. And I'm telling you what, Paul's going to hit pride very hard. Talk about the need for humility. That's going to hinder our unity. The race issue is going to hinder our unity if we don't tackle it the right way. It will. And again, it goes right back to what we said, pride. If we're all trying to stick to our own side of the story and have our own purpose for the church, uniquely saturated in our own cultures, have our own ideas of how we should do things, we're going to butt heads and we're not going to accomplish anything. We have to put those things in their place. Politics. Could politics disrupt the church? Ah, we'll move to the next point. No, politics could. We have to be on guard for all these things. Our own unique theologies. Someone was talking with me this week about someone trying to push a unique cultural theology and trying to get it into the church. Say, we really need to promote this cultural theology that's embedded in a subculture because it's rich heritage. Well, we're concerned about biblical theology enriched in the scriptures, derived from that. That's what we're concerned about. But we all want our own unique contribution. We have to go to what Christ wants. And the next thing that can hinder our unity is a misunderstanding of the mission of the church. And we'll talk about that as we study the mission of the church. Going out to make disciples. Fulfilling the Great Commission. And if that's not our main focus, then we're not fulfilling the mission of the church. We're doing social club things. What about things that can promote unity? What about things that can promote unity for gospel partnership? And really, this boils down to worldview. Many of us are reluctant often to accept 
or to adopt biblical worldviews. We want to hold on to what we've been taught in whatever school. But Paul wants us to adopt a biblical worldview, biblical view of how life works, biblical view on uh, unity, suffering, joy, humility, all these things. But we've already seen unity. This, is, this will promote gospel partnership. Excuse me, verse uh, 127 again, chapter 127. We already read it, but he says, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit. So striving for the unity, that will help sustain us in our gospel partnership. Striving together and suffering. We already read it, but verse 29, chapter 1, For to you it has been granted, for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. 2.17, Paul says, But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You also have verse 30, Because he came, Epaphroditus, close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. What did Paul want to experience in chapter 3? He wanted to experience the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. Partners in Christ's sufferings would be the word. So he wants us to have unity, and that's going to promote the partnership. He wants us to have sacrificial suffering, that's going to promote the partnership. He wants us to also have transcendent joy, and that's also going to promote the partnership. 1, verses 4 through 5, he says, Always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. Why was he offering prayer with joy? Because of their participation in the gospel from the first day until now. So he's joyful for that. And 2, verse 2, make my joy complete by being unified. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, being united in spirit, intent on one purpose. This transcendent joy will be key to pre preserving our gospel partnership. And I'd say the pinnacle, the pinnacle of maintaining this partnership is humility. And that's where you have the capstone of the letter in chapter 2. Humility, doing nothing from selfishness, chapter 2, verse 3, or, or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And it talks about what Christ did, obeying to the point of death. Humility is the pinnacle. If we don't have that, we're not going to be unified. We don't have a true concern for the well-being of each other, a true real, a real understanding that, hey, the next person is more important than I am. If we don't have that, we're not going to be unified in our gospel partnership. So what about some actions to help us carry out the partnership? Just, these are just brief ideas. Hospital visits, meals, evangelism, giving your personal resources, I'm, talking, I'm not talking just about money. Praying for each other. Discipling each other. I think what all these have in common is that these things are all being done at our church. All these things are. And more. So that's why I believe this letter is an encouragement to us to keep doing what we're doing and to not get sidetracked. To stay united for the work of the gospel and not the other stuff. Encouragement to keep doing what we're doing. So... I do believe this church was founded under the right goals of being committed to the gospel, people partnering together to start this church. 
and not having other agendas, people really coming to know Christ and being discipled. And I believe what sustained us so far is God working through the members of this church to keep partnering for the gospel. And I believe that's why we're here still today. So I want us to be a church that continues to partner together, a church that continues to work together for the work that Christ has given us. There might be people in the room who don't care about partnering in the gospel. Maybe you don't even care about the gospel, period. If that's the case, then you have not seen how liberating the gospel is. You have not experienced that you truly can be forgiven of your sins. I was talking with uh, someone who was a Muslim a couple weeks ago, and his view of God is that, well, yeah, if God wants to forgive you, he just, you know, he can. There's no certainty there whatsoever. No hope there. No liberation from sin. If that's you, then Christ is there. He has offered the freedom of the gospel. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. Go to him and experience the liberty that's in the gospel. But maybe that's not you. Maybe you're just cold. Maybe you're just cold right now. Maybe you're cold to the work of the gospel. I've been there before. Where you get so focused on certain things you're doing, they might be good things, but you lose perspective. And people mention things about the gospel, and you're like, okay, I've heard it before. I got it. Stop it. Have you, are you cold? When we go camping, we usually go on cold nights. I don't know why. But one of the best things about the camping when you're cold is the, the campfire. You're freezing. You wake up. What do you do? You just go to the fire. It thaws you out, and it helps you function like a normal person again. <laughs> That's what it does. I think Philippians is that fire. You step closer to it. You get closer and closer. You see, wow, I've been reading Philippians all, along, all wrong. I've been reading the New Testament all wrong. I've been cold toward the gospel. I haven't really cared about any of this stuff. I've been worried about my pet peeves and my soapboxes and anything but the mission of the church. You get closer and closer and closer to the message of Philippians, and it warms your heart. It thaws it out, and it renews your desire to work for Jesus. And to have joy in doing it, not saying, well, that's so hard. If I do that, then I'll ruin my life. But doing those things, even though you might die, like Epaphroditus almost did, and coming out with joy, letting the fire of Philippians warm your heart. The closer you're going to get to it, you keep studying, it's going to drip gasoline on your feet. And the closer you get, it's going to light your feet on fire. And the more you study, you won't be able to help but to run out and do something with the motivation of the gospel only behind you and the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what Philippians is going to do for us. And that's my prayer for us. I really want us to look carefully at the letter, study it on our own, study the mission of the church, what we're called to do here as believers, what God's called the local church to do, and not get sidetracked. So let's have that as our prayer tonight and as we move on this week. Let's pray together. Father, we do love you. We do thank you for this message the message that Paul delivered the Philippians nearly 2,000 years ago. And we can receive encouragement from it today. We can re renew our purpose, the purpose that you've given us. You can help us be unified under one thing, the main thing, Jesus Christ and him crucified, and we can go out and do his work, his way. I pray that you'd help us to be unified. I pray that we'd be humble. I pray that we would be rejoicing. I pray that we would be self-sacrificial. pray that we would be unified, standing firm for the work of the gospel. 
We love you. We pray that you'll help us to apply this to our hearts this week. Convict us where needed. Encourage us where needed. Help us to run back to the gospel. Praise in Christ's name. Amen.